Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, I'm recorded live. Welcome to the GIC call. It is better known as the Grounded in Commerce. It is March 10th, 2015. Grounded Commerce's group's objective is bringing sense to the seemingly sensible world of commerce. People tend to get lost in their administrative processes and pursuits and being applicable to their private and public merits and standing. We offer to our listeners the various exposures and educational materials to gain an, an understanding to one's pursuits. This material here is not to be misconstrued as legal or financial advice. We strongly suggest if you need legal or financial advice, we, we ask you to seek a licensed attorney or financial planner or both. This material here is for entertainment purposes only. And I would like to turn the mic over to Nancy. So is Nancy there? I am here. Good evening, everyone. Um, Tonight I'd like to start off with a couple of... um, I'm going to define a couple of things and... and, um, I'm going to talk about two different subjects, but they're both having them relating to mortgages um, and issues thereof in court. Um, and, and maybe this is kind of a definition for you so that you can kind of get an idea of where and when this might be used. Um, so after I give you some definitions, then maybe you can um, make some uh, applicable um applicable relations there to it. So the first one I'd like to talk about is a judicial notice. Um, a judicial notice, there is actually a rule, it's called Rule 201 in the Federal Rules of Evidence, it's called the Judicial Notice of Adjudicative Facts. It's a scope that the rule governs the judicial notice of an adjudicative fact only and not a legislative fact. So from that perspective, it means it's only something that is in that adjudicated, it's, it's been adjudged in a certain way. Kinds of facts that may be judicially noticed, the court may judicially notice facts that is not subject to reasonable dispute because it is generally known within the trial court's territorial jurisdiction. Now, in federal court, my assertion means that's all over the United States. If it's generally known across the trial court's uh, you know, the whole United States, then it can be noticed as a judicial notice. Um, it can be accurately and readily determined from the sources whose accuracy cannot be reasonably questioned. So from my perspective, I guess if I were to look at a um, a news article or something and see that five or six people were reporting the same thing. Now, if it were five, you know, major news people, I may or may not, you know, necessarily think that it's the right thing, but yet it's reasonable sources um, that have determined those facts that are, are that should not be in question. Um, 
And yet, from the same perspective, they may be in question because they may not be giving you the whole story or the complete story or the all of the details that will make it work from that perspective. Then in taking the notice, the court may take judicial notice on its own. So meaning can say, hey, I want to take a judicial notice. I know this is I know this information is generally known. It's accurately and readily determined. And so therefore I'm going to make it known to the court that I as the judge am going to make this known already. So I'm going to put it into a notice. And then secondly, you can take a judicial notice if a party requests it or if the court is supplied with the necessary information. So you have to bring your evidences. Remember, this is your opportunity to bring it to the judge's attention, what you want him to hear, how you want him to how he, you want him to perceive you as knowing and understanding the rules, and therefore you're presenting this information in that matter and that fact, and that it's again generally known and accurately and readily determinable. Next is timing. The court may take judicial notice at any time in any stage of proceeding. So it can happen up in the very beginning, it can happen in the middle, it can happen at the end. Wherever you want to take judicial notice to, you can do that as far as that is concerned. Next is the opportunity to be heard. On a timely request, a party is entitled to be heard on the propriety of taking judicial notice and the nature of fact to be noticed. If the court takes a judicial notice before notifying a party, the party on request is still entitled to be heard. I think that's important. It says again, if the court takes judicial notice before notifying a party, the party on request is still entitled to be heard. So that's your opportunity right there. Instructing for the jury in case you have a civil case that's a jury trial in a civil case, the court must instruct the jury to accept the notice fact as conclusive. That doesn't mean they get to make any other determinations other than it is conclusive as a judicial notice. If the court says, hey, this is you're you know, you're going to take this judicial notice into fact, then that's that opportunity right there for them to take it as conclusive, not something else. In a criminal case, the court must instruct the jury that it may or may not accept the notice um, as noticed fact as conclusive. So interesting that civil cases it is accepted and in a uh, criminal case it may or may not be noticed. Um, so those are some opportunities to learn about judicial notices. There's uh, probably if you just Google judicial notices on the web, you might get um, several hundred opportunities to learn and and um, and dive in and dissect what it is and, and how it formats and all the rest of those things. Um, the next term I'd like to uh, discuss would be a declaratory judgment. Um, it's a statutory remedy for the determination of just ability controversy where the plaintiff is in doubt as to his or her legal rights and a binding adjudication of the rights and status of the litigants, even though not consequential relief, is awarded. 
Individuals may seek a declaratory judgment after a legal controversy has arisen, but before any damages have occurred or any laws have been violated. So you'll notice the difference between this and the other is that this has to occur within a time frame after the damage, or before damages, but after the legal controversy has started. Okay. A declaratory judgment differs from a judicial ruling in that it does not require that an action to be taken. So the judge may or may not do anything. Instead, the judge, after analyzing the controversy, simply issues an opinion declaring rights of each of the parties involved. So at some point, the judge will analyze it, determine it, make an opinion, and make the parties known. A declaratory judgment may only be granted in justable controversies, that is, in actuality, rather than hypothetical controversies that fall within the court's jurisdiction. So we talk a lot about jurisdiction and difference between state and federal. Um, if you bring in a federal issue into state court and, and you're trying to get a declaratory judgment on it, Mm, pretty sure the judge is going to have a hard time doing that because it's going to fall outside of his jurisdiction. So again, be careful what you're asking for, how you're asking, and who you're asking. A declaratory judgment, sometimes called a declaratory relief, is conclusive and legally binding as to the present and future rights of the parties involved. The parties involved in a declaratory, declaratory judgment may not later seek another court resolution on the same legal issue unless they appeal the judgment. So imperative, you can only ask for one of those That's that, on that same topic unless you're going to go to an appeal. Declaratory judgments are often sought in situations involving contracts, deeds, leases, and wills. An insurance company, for example, might seek a declaratory judgment as to whether a policy applies to a certain person or event. The declaratory judgment also commonly involves individuals and parties who seek to determine their rights under specific regulatory or criminal laws. Declaratory judgments are considered a type of preventative justice. By informing parties of their rights, they help them to avoid violating specific laws or the terms of a contract. In 1934, Congress enacted the Declaratory Judgment Act, uh, 28 U.S.C.A. 2201, which allows for a declaratory judgment concerning issues of federal law. At the state level, the National Conference of Commissioners on the Uniform State Laws passed the Uniform Declaratory Judgments Act at 12 ULA 109 in 1922. And between 1922 and 1993, this act was adopted in 41 states, the Virgin Islands, the Commonwealth, Puerto Rico. Most of the states have varying laws that provide declaratory judgments. Most declaratory judgments laws grant judges discretion to decide whether or not the issue is a declaratory judgment. So, two terms, 
two sets of information used in the same manner for court, um, used in different ways, and yet both of them could be considered powerful um, tools for your attorney to utilize for you on your behalf. So that's what I have to offer this tonight. Any questions, comments, or concerns? Yeah, I can I can help you, Nancy. A little bit. I have um, Black's Law Second Edition. It says a declaratory judgment is one that simply declares the right of a party or expresses the opinions of the court of a question in law without ordering anything to be done. Right. So, so what did you what are we saying? We're saying that we're just saying we have an we have an agreement or a judgment against you, but is it enforceable? Is what we're saying. Is that what we're saying here tonight? Is it? You're asking me. Seems reasonable. I'm asking. I'm I, I understand what you're asking. <laughs> I'm asking people to think about it. Make it make it live within them rather than just gaining information from someone else that they actually put brains in gear and start it start the gears winding. Okay, so what would be the other type of judgment you would have if you didn't have a declaratory judgment? What could it be? I mean, if you went to court for a mortgage or something, what kind of judgment would a judge give somebody? There's other kinds of judgments that happen, which is the basic judgment of the court, court ruling, which is not a declaratory judgment. It is not a judicial notice. There's what about the judge taking notice of news articles about massive mortgage fraud by the banks, the major banks. There you go. Would that be something that a judge could take notice of? That would be something that he could take notice of. As reported by the Wall Street Journal, as reported by the New York Times, as reported by the Chicago Tribune, as reported by Newsweek, you know, all of those opportunities there exist as they're reported they could then be taken as judicial notices. Yeah, you might want to do some homework and background and really read the article. Because the article sometimes are deceiving in what they say and what they mean. So could a person, if they were in a foreclosure proceeding, bring this to the judge's attention and move the court to take notice of this general information? Absolutely. From my perspective, there's no reason that they can't. And I wonder if how that might serve a person's case or if it would. Well, I don't know. Maybe one might have some information from the Securities and Exchange Commission on the number of fines that a particular bank may have paid. So... I can pretty sure assure you that when the SEC steps in and makes a uh, claim that they have to write up a report, and that report becomes public knowledge. Now, could you go in? Could you go in this court as a friend of the court, or is it your case? But because it's your case, you may not be able to go as a friend of the court because it is your case. But couldn't someone come in as a friend of the court and say, 
you know, that this is what's happened and see what they would say, you know. I mean, it's an idea. You know, I've tried that one time and uh, it wasn't success- successful at it, but um, 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 I would be willing to explore that again too, so. Well, why would you need to bring someone else if it's public knowledge as a judicial notice? Why would you need to bring someone else into it? It's public notice. It's public information. It's out there. Why would you need to bring someone else into it and, and jump in the middle of your of your? Uh, well, it's sort of like it goes like this. It says bring, uh, you bring the law in, but maybe not bring the law in, but you're bringing the facts in here that this bank is, has track record of committing fraud and all this other stuff. And I wouldn't even want to use the word fraud, but you could say something this track record doesn't have a really good track record and you may bring suspect to, um, you know, whatever court hearing, whatever the case is about. So it was just something, you know, about maybe we could merge that or maybe it can be merged and it's, it's possible. So. Okay, so as an example, one might Google the amount of just uh, Bank of America fines paid or countrywide fines paid or GMAC fines paid or, you know, whatever, name your, name your flavor, okay? And determine from the article what is common knowledge in that article and what is it that you're trying to bring forth. But you, the moving party, or the party that's in the court trying to move the court to hear your information, it's your responsibility to bring it. What I got was, was Chuck, was you're trying to get someone else to bring in that information for you. It's not, you already have the right to bring it in. There's no reason for you to have to go to someone else to bring it in. You simply present it to the, jur- or to the judge or to the jury, whoever you're, whoever you're communicating with in the court. Yeah, but didn't we see a document where there was um, this guy had something about Wells Fargo, and they were saying that Wells Fargo was doing this and this, some really bad stuff. And he he put it in a court case, and the uh, judge striked it. You know, so I mean, um, I don't know is why you would have done that. Is that not the judge's right? Pardon? Is that not the judge's right to strike it if he doesn't want if he doesn't want it in there? Oh um, yeah, yes it is. Okay, and can he make an objection to the strike? The, uh, the plaintiff, or, I mean, the defendant. Yes, he could make a strike. He could make an objection to it. He could. So let's let's just do a hypothetical. I, I'm going to say that. Oh, thank God, it's you doing a hypothetical. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to use a total hypothetical. Okay. Right. I, I'm going to I'm going to say that you know someone ran someone over. Okay. <laughs> and and you and and you have the person in the courtroom. Actually, that may not be a good idea. No, go ahead, because there's somebody on the call that that's sort of have the same problem right now. Okay, explore that. They ran over. There's somebody on this call. I know there is. Well, go ahead. My, my point is is that it, you bring in a fact about judicial notice, so maybe this person has been drunk in public before. Okay? Maybe this person has an arrest record. Maybe this person has... Um, has had the police come to their house for civil disobedience because of drunken disorder, okay? Those things are what I would call common knowledge, common information. It's out there. It's everybody has the opportunity to learn it and discover it, but they have to do their due diligence. But 
Do you bring that into court? That's the pro- that's the question. Do you bring it? Well, if you were trying to get a judicial notice in regards to that, you would bring that with the case law that goes with it, because it's not just about the guy running someone over, because that's a personal issue. That's why I was trying not to do that one. But if it's a bank or a financial institution that's paid the SEC, that's paid the FDIC, that's paid, you know, this is all common knowledge. This isn't any new information here. Okay? That's why I said it's just a simple Google, and you can find lots of articles that talk about how much they have paid or in fines. Um, last time I checked, it was $91 billion for, for Bank of America. Did they ever admit okay. any wrongdoing? No, there's no wrongdoing when they when they create a when you create a contract. Hi, I'll pay you these fines as long as you say that I didn't do anything wrong. But isn't the subject matter of a judicial notice is being specific to fact? It, it, that it is. Then how? What purpose would it serve to draw upon all these publications? Um, within this matter, is speaking to mortgages. Uh, if they're, they haven't admitted to any wrongdoing, what purpose well, sir? The only thing you could do is point out that they have been fined by these various agencies. No, they just agreed to a settlement to stop the investigation. There was nothing admitted. You would have to find a court case. They are called fines, however. Okay, so if that was going to be the case, then would you not have to subpoena somebody from the SEC mm-hmm. to give testimony of why they paid? Okay. I see your point. Any other questions, comments, or concerns? Uh, I have a question. Okay. So uh, let's say uh, there's this hypothetical situation where you have, like, something called robo-signing, and you want to bring in through mandatory judicial notice the, uh, what was it, the court case where Lorraine Brown, who was in charge of CEO of LPS, Lender Processing Services, uh, into the case, and her... Uh, admittance of, you know, the hundreds of thousands of millions of uh, notes that they basically uh, robo-signed. Would that be done through a certified copy, or would you need to also have the whole court case, or would you just need part certified or just a copy of the case and submit that in as mandatory judicial notice? Well, I've seen some judicial notices, and I've never seen anyone put in the whole court case. I have okay. seen them reference the case and put right. in the pertinent information that they wanted to bring forth. Would it be and a certified would... copy or just a just the actual verbiage like from the affidavit or declaration or whatnot? What do you mean from the verbiage or from the affidavit? Uh well such as Lorraine Brown in that specific case she admitted to a variety of uh incidents. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, but you know, there's a list of them. So okay. taking that right from whatever's available on the Internet, that's like for the Department of Justice or 
or from one of the PDF files that basically states that it's from that case with her signature on it? If you were going to take some information from a court case and put it in a judicial notice, if it were me, the only way in which I would do it is if I had actual a copy, whether it be certified or not. It would have to me come from, I would have to go to that court, request a copy of that court hearing or that case or the whatever it was and, and bring it back. That would be me. Because that way I would understand and I would know that I have done my diligence in researching this information. Because I can guarantee you there's lots of documents out on the internet that are they true? Are they accurate? I have no idea. Are they partials? Are they clear? Are they not clear? I, I don't know. It right. Sometimes even yeah. lawyers will um, reference case law that really uh, is not accurate. Yeah. Would, would uh, something from the Department of Justice's website, you know, showing that particular issue be sufficient in, in your experience? Or would you say well, I guess from my experience, if I had known who the web designer was at the, at the Department of Justice and who actually, you know, uploaded the document and brought that in, I would want to do some due diligence to find out who did that and if it was accurate. What I have noticed is that there is a citation of the case law and then just the pertinent um, information. But it doesn't mean that you don't do your due diligence behind that. That's what I'm getting at. I'm, I'm not just saying go gather all this information off the web and throw shit on the wall. Not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying if you have knowledge and understanding and you can gather some factual data that you can draft in your pleadings and put together your documents the way you want them or have your excuse me, your attorney, you know, have the, your attorney present the information to the court, that's what's required. You make a good point because the opposing side may read the case and see if that referenced uh, section is actually in the case. Absolutely. And if they come back and say it isn't, then it throws the whole thing out. And you may have some good stuff in there. But because you put one bad thing in there, you threw, threw all of it out. So one misleading fact or misleading, you know, bits of information can, can damage the whole document. And it will suspect upon you, personally. What do you try? I mean, just because the, the, the other side can do chicanery and, you know, all, all kinds of whatever else they want to do, you know, the guy behind the curtain, you know, poof kind of trick, whatever they want to do. Doesn't mean you can do that. You're held to a different and a higher standard than they are. That's reassuring and comforting to know. <laughs> well, is it, is, anyone want to rebut that statement? <laughs> anyone want to challenge me on that one? I I think that's you know a pretty honest statement. I I, don't, I think there is nothing that they can do on the other side 
if they can have you look over here at the pretty white light while over here in the corner they do something different, that's their job. I think in contrast, the subject matter is, is that if you're looking at an attorney versus a person who's operating pro se, the issue is an attorney, because of his standing as part of being of the bar, is allowed to move forward with uh, allegation and brief, which may not be totally supported in fact until at least it's rebutted for its, for its standing. On the other hand, a pro se litigant is not permitted to move forward um, in that same capacity because that would be regarded as a form of hearsay evidence. Pro se is moving forward with first hand or they're bringing the law with them as they approach the bench. That would be what I view as the distinction. So what are we saying here, Kenny? Are we saying that the attorney may lie, not swearing anything, just put some allegations out there and uh, see whether or not you rebut them? And if you don't rebut them, then it stands as truth, right? Oh, so sort of like the... Yeah, you had that up earlier regarding the amount of uh, case law that they'll throw in um, into support of some sort of a claim, whereby the vast majority of it would have nothing to do um, with that allegation. Rather, what the subject matter is, is that they that they know that those that are seeking to represent themselves um, are not familiar enough with the case law, and they get bogged down, and they don't have time to answer within the um, appropriate uh, time frame um, is, is essentially what it comes down to. Didn't we talk about this, too, before, that we said that when the attorneys are like, sort of like, well, this is a case in foreclosure. You just say this case law, this case law, this case law. And then they never read it anyway, the attorney. And then they're bringing it in, and it had absolutely nothing to do with your case whatsoever. But it was just sort of something that they clip and paste and put it on there. And that's kind of, you know, so it might be behoove us to look at whatever they're saying to. That or else perhaps uh, the counter to it would be instead of just placing a site, uh, request a definitive statement. What specifically is counsel seeking to uh, present to the court? How is it into the case, in other words? Provide a definitive statement. Yes, sir. I think you're absolutely right, Jenny. On a definitive statement, right? <clears throat> so I would like to ask, what is the um, case that uh, the caller was referring to? Could you please tell me what that case was? I would like to look that up myself. Could you repeat that case name? <clears throat> You're talking about the person that was talking about the um, notary uh, or yeah, the robo notary signing. That was Neil. Neil, you still on the line? So. Yeah, I, I'm here. There's a Lorraine Brown, the lender processing service, uh, robo signing. If you Google that, you'll you'll find a whole bunch of stuff on that Department of Justice. You'll find the court case citing all that information is pretty much right there online. Thank you. 
But within that same context, isn't the subject matter is even though that she had been charged and prosecuted for robo-signing, how would you tie that into your own case? I mean, you can make the allegation, right? I mean, if we walk through this. Only if she was the uh, notary. In your particular case, she robo-signed your documents. The, uh, the connection that I, Neil would make on the particular case he was working on is that lender processing service is a, uh, what is it, is the other corporation. I, I know where you're going with that. They have a reputation of being known as rubber signing and they've had their employees sanctioned. Right. Uh, and they also have all the different various companies that uh, sign underneath them and utilize them as a service. And on the particular one that Neil was working on, uh, they were basically, uh, you know, using that service just through a different company. I can't remember which particular one. I think it was LPS. One of them was signed by LPS. Yeah. Well, see, they do have a history, and uh, I can agree and understand where, where you're taking this. Yet in the same breath is, are we not actually speaking into the subject matter of saying that the documents themselves, just simply because of the, of the circumstances that are involved with the documentation, are we not casting suspect on the documents themselves, which um, um, from our side, we would be saying need further investigation and verifiable and authentic um, uh, verification for their standing before there's any ruling against, you know, um, against us, I would say. In other words, bringing up the subject matter of this right here constitutes something of suspect. And uh, and this way here, if the opponent made the election at that time that they were going to seek to uh, have the case dismissed or seek to move for some form of summary judgment, you know, based upon whatever principles they want to throw out there, the object would be, whoa, 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 slow down here just a second. The subject matter of a lone Lauren Brown um, being involved as part of the robo-signing network as far as LPS is concerned, they should at least be to the consideration of this court that the documentation in which my opponent is currently uh, presenting as evidences may, not, may in fact be, well, maladministrated into. And they need further investigation and you seek to have, author, um, um, have them certified and authentic for their purposes. So in other words, we begin to challenge the the documents which the other party is putting out to determine whether or not they are in fact authentic documents. In other words, we're challenging the signatures that we um, yeah we're challenging the signatures that we're speaking to here. So to speak to that particular issue more directly on the case that Neil is working on, it'd be not only the signatures, but the actual dates are, uh, in this case, was an impossibility. So what we found, I think, is, and we discussed this on one of your calls previously, is that the matter was in bankruptcy, and that issue is not a, a federal issue. That would fall under, I believe, the slander of title, uh, possibly. Um, and so we should have been bringing a state suit, which I believe the judge was letting us know that. This is uh, not me personally in the case, but yeah. um, 
judge was basically saying uh, something to the effect of, um, well, I find that they have a colorable claim and standing is, I'm not going to rule on standing, but, uh, you know, something about reserve, that'll be reserved for a state issue or something of that nature. Yeah, he's speaking at that point there. He's, he's tipping his hand to speak into the subject matter of a quiet title action uh, being performed on the property itself. However, uh, as far as the BK court would go, um, what is being stated, and keep it in mind that BK is federal jurisdiction. And within there, they get to play with that thing called interest. And within that there, we should recognize that uh, under a person that's entitled to enforce under 3-301 um, and under test three, what we come to recognize is that even persons who may have wrongfully or perhaps even illegally come into possession of, um, of the note uh, can still enforce it. And, and what we're speaking to here is by colorful expression. So um, the onus at that point in time is to discharge the presumption that the party that is making claim as creditor in a BK court, that they actually don't, uh, that they may not be a party that is entitled to enforce that instrument without the um, certified and authentic documents to support their claim. Does anybody else have any processes they want to ask questions on? Uh, yeah, I have a friend of mine wants to, but I thought we'd still keep going the mortgages for a second or two, you know. But I even even if it even like you Neo's talking and Kenny's talking about how these about the signatures, we should always be uh asking about the signatures, whether or not they're valid or not valid, because it doesn't matter if they were Robeset or not, because we're, we we may never know, you know, honestly, you know. So, you know, I think that uh was it three dash three oh eight, right right? signatures so signatures, yeah. Well, especially being true that if they're making admissions that they're destroying the originating documents I would find that to be very alarming yes we know that you know that that's that would be my come from and I do believe that um, perhaps the way that I may approach it would be I would be in possession of my deed of trust or my mortgage and I have the outline of the terms in there which are very specific as far as a subject matter of me receiving the documents um, upon me honoring my obligation. How am I to receive the documents back if they destroyed them? <laughs> That's a great point. Well, they used to do what? We had mortgage, mortgage burns or something like that years ago when you got the deed, somebody got back, and they all had this big bonfire and a big yeah, party. Yeah, mortgage burning party, yep. Yeah, How are we supposed to continue on that tradition and custom? <laughs> there you go, Dave. <laughs> But if we're going, if I could take it back to perhaps um, what Nancy had brought up was the subject matter of judicial notice. Uh, perhaps we should recognize that the subject matter of judicial notice is actually contingent around the term fact and within the boundaries of fact finder, whether that is under civil as a bench trial or perhaps even uh, under a jury um, as given to criminal even. That the object, the object there is to recognize that, um, as given, it'd be easier to recognize it in a contrast. I believe when we're talking about a judicial notice, what we're speaking about is an adjudicative um, um, fact. 
versus what would be regarded as legislative or perhaps statutory tax. And so this way here, the idea is, is that the fact in which is being forwarded or brought forward is not subject to reasonable dispute. That's, that's what we're speaking to under a judicial notice. When we say that, um, that for the principle of speaking to moving towards a judicial notice by the fact in which is being brought forward is only as valid um, as the court will recognize and accept it. In other, and those are the key elements, recognize and accept it. So to understand how the court recognizes and accepts it, the first thing that we need to do is immediately run on over to the formal rules of evidences and procedures. Uh, if we're not versed in that subject matter, what we'll come to discover is that we'll, it'll be like trying to hold on to a, um, a slippery fish. It'll get away from even, even though you, you've got it right there in your hands, it just, you know, it's and it just gets away from you. Uh, and it's simply because it's not being founded within the rules. So when we're starting, when we're speaking to that there, what we're speaking about um, in so many words is uh, how is that, how is that fact being generated? Is it a firsthand, is it by firsthand knowledge? Do you have perhaps under testimony, do you have a person that has firsthand knowledge under testimony, or in the alternative, perhaps like even having uh, an expert uh, witness. Um, keep it in mind that when we start speaking to under hearsay rules, uh, which is really a complex, it's really deep and complex, the hear, hearsay rule. Anyways, the, the, the gist of it is, is that when we start looking at opinion, the idea is, is um, a lay person being contrasted to an expert witness is not allowed to give opinion. In other words, they can only state the fact and they're not allowed to interpret the fact. An expert witness, on the other hand, is not restricted under that rule. So they're permitted uh, to make an assessment on the subject matter. So when we're talking about um, moving forward with some form of a judicial notice, is that generally speaking, and I'm going to say this in, in, in a context is say that what we're seeking to, because I think I heard the term declaratory judgment come up within the same context, is to recognize that a uh, declaratory judgment is only determining the rights of a party. And that's not without the judge ordering anything. In other words, they're just identifying the rights of the parties. So, in other words, the legal relationship that is held between those parties uh, respects to whatever the matter is. Now, if a party brings forward uh, a judicial notice, uh, being that a fact which essentially cannot be disputed unless it's not recognized by the rules of evidence, such as for admissions, um, if, if, they can, if they pass admissions and then they get it put in for a judicial notice, at that point, they can move for a declaratory judgment uh, if they're not looking for uh, a monetary award. What we come to recognize, and I will just use it in this context, speaking into mortgages and whatnot, is that when parties are moving towards a quiet title action, they're not seeking a monetary relief. They're seeking to have 
the liens removed from that property. So that's what the declaratory judgment is, is for them to lift those liens. Now, if a person was moving towards lender liability and or tort issues, breach of contract, et cetera, now that in itself, you would not be seeking a declaratory judgment on that. That right there is, it would be uh, perhaps a summary judgment if the other side did not have a supportive fact uh, to rebut or to offset um, our claims. So I hope that that kind of cleared it up a little. Uh, oh, something that we could entertain, um, that anybody who is interested with to understand the principles that goes back to the adjudicative process itself is uh, look up Cardosa, uh, Benjamin Cardosa. Now, that cat, um, he sat on the uh, it, um, New York, the, uh, New York uh, Court of Appeals to begin with. And then he moved in as an associate justice for the Supreme Court. Now, he had purchased or drafted a book called uh, The Nature of the Judicial Process. Now, what, why I'm bringing this up is for the persons that want to understand the foundations, and this is at a real interesting period of time in American history, because we're talking about um, the late 1800s, you know, like 1890 or so, I think is when he got involved, 1895, something like that. Um, and he moved through all the way through into the 1930s. Wow. So, um, and he had, you see, when was it? Um, I think I think he had like a, uh, if I remember the story, it was like he, he had a heart attack. He was on the Supreme Court at the time. And he had a heart attack, I think it was like in 1937. And uh, then he had a stroke in 1938 and checked out. But if you note, that is the, during the period of time that they were that they constructed the New Deal. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. so now he there are many things in which he was descending against and he rebutted against. Uh, where uh, he uh, um, actually, if it wasn't for him, there would be we would really be in a uh, a very interesting state right now. I would imagine uh, he replaced uh, Wendell Jones, if you guys recall uh, mm-hmm. Oliver Wendell Jones. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the issue is, is that he brought the common law into the system. And, well, I mean, it, this, it was already there, but what I mean is that he stood for the common law is what I'm getting at. So for people that want to understand the nature of today's system, that of the civil law and how it embodies the common law, I would suggest uh, reading the nature of the judicial process. What was his first name? <laughs> it's not an easy read. He he does not write easy. I'll tell you that now. The way that he, it's, he it's not an easy read. It's spelled Cardoza, C-A-R-D-O-Z-O. Oh, O-Z-A, Cardoza, yeah. with an A, as in Apple, Benjamin. Hey, what was this? Oh, Benjamin, okay. Yeah, I got it on Wiki up here, unless Wiki spelled it wrong. I don't know. Mm, I spelled it wrong. Uh, I don't have the book sitting here in front of me. I got it upstairs. Uh, but they uh, they validate what you said. Uh, significant influence on the development of American common law in the 20th century. Yeah, yeah. He he was a pretty bright bulb, um, and he challenged, which was really interesting because um, I do believe that he was appointed um, 
by a republic no a democratic president and he had the full support of the republican body that should tell you something mm. Well, I bet that Roosevelt was quite opposed to him and found him to be an opponent. Ah, that's where the whole stitch in nine sa- or stitch in time saves nine comes from. <laughs> so, what did we go from seven to nine Supreme Court justices? Well, what it was is that he was trying to stack the deck and he was trying to get rid of the the parties. And if he couldn't get rid of them, he wanted to stack it up higher. Yeah. Right, who was who was trying to stack the deck? Roosevelt, Roosevelt, with the Supreme Court justices, because he couldn't get certain mm, changes in law implemented, like yeah, removal right. of the gold oh. clause from the contract law. Yeah, public policy, yeah. Dave. That's, okay. That's where, we, that's where we moved into off what would be regarded as the common law pleadings, and we moved into a statutory form of law or civil law. Uh, that was introduced in 1938 as part of the second New Deal. But during the periods of time between 1932 and 1938 is where they uh, constructed um, this new form of commerce law, which I do believe that's where, like, the, the first issue of the Uniform Commercial Code came out. I believe it was, like, in 1952 or something like that. I would hazard a guess that what I was taught in high school, because they openly admitted that Roosevelt was trying to stack the Supreme Court in his favor, that that probably is not taught in uh, the curriculum now. I would venture to say that's correct. Because currently, like if we actually analyze what uh, public policy is, public policy is, is... the antithesis to common law or the Constitution of the United States. It violates the very principles of why, how this country was formed. Well, yeah, they haven't they haven't been very forthcoming with the truth about that. <laughs> but you know, the the beauty of it is, and I, 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 you know, if we're if we're trying to look for you know a ray of sunlight in this, is that. The, the the justices, what they did is they recognized how the system was going, and they embodied the principles of the common law, which was the common law pleading. They embodied the, the, the those very principles are maintained within the commercial code and within the statutory laws today under the civil rules of procedures and the civil rules of evidence. They're inside there. It's just, it's not, it's not just uh, like a neon light flashing on them. If you're following what I'm saying, it's like not pointing, saying, "See here, see here, see here," but they're written inside there. So uh, if we um, use the code by pulling out those references that are um, that embody the common law principles. They have a most difficult time getting past that. So hey, it's, Tim, there's people I, online right now that like should be muting or something like that. It's kind of like interfering with uh, our call. Anybody's got any input about talking? Maybe mute out. Help us out. I'm sorry, uh, uh, you came in broken up on this, and I couldn't. Hear yeah, you. that's what I'm saying. It's breaking up a little bit because uh, somebody's on that needs to mute out. You know what I mean? So it's, it's interfering with uh, what we're saying. So. Anybody's got anything? They're not talking. Please mute us. 
What's the code to mute out? Star what? I thought it was star six. Sure, I'll try it. Stand by. Okay, Kenny, if you're talking, I can't hear you. Yeah, star six is the mute. If you didn't catch that, star six does mute. And then to come back in, you have to star six again. Do we have anything else to entertain for this evening? Are we still okay, Alan? Does anybody else have any other questions on the call? Yeah, I'm back. You have something you want to say, Ken? Uh, well, uh, yeah. Well, we're uh, Chuck and I were kind of talking earlier uh, a little bit, and I uh, said it might be a good idea to bring us up. You know, I, I lost my home, and uh, uh, Chuck said I might have a case here. With it, with it being a bifurcated uh, uh, mortgage, uh, and I, I don't know how how to go about uh, uh, filing uh, a case on this. Okay. I would suggest, if you don't mind, I would suggest the first place to start is a chain of title assessment to see where there may be clouds on the title or a break in the chain of title. Okay. And then utilizing that information um, for your attorney to, to take a look at your situation and see what strategy he might devise from that. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, that we can't speak into specifics, um, you know, like on a case-for-case case what to do because we're not attorneys. Right. Um, however, what, uh, what Dave offered there for the consideration, I, I support which is to have a chain of title assessment done. Are you familiar with what that is, Ken? No, I think, well, I think I have to go to the, uh, the counter recorder and get the, get a printout of uh, the chain of title from the, when I got it to the end. Well, right? uh, yes and no. The, uh, uh, what you're speaking to is yes. What a chain of title assessment is, and it is the evaluation of, of, of whatever the records are that are maintained within the land records office in your county, and also all the ancillary documents in which you may have had in the course of your exchanges, including any court cases. And within this uh, context, if you had lost your property, I would presume that you have the documents that support uh, the case as well. Uh, the idea is, is that if it fell under, um, if there are breaches, uh, within the chain of title and or uh, breaches within the chain of custody of the note, then it may rise to um, wrongful foreclosure or illegal or unlawful foreclosure, uh, which uh, may pave the way towards um, a lender liability suit or perhaps a breach of contract suit, whereby sure. you may be able to... Now, sub how long ago did you lose the property? Uh, last June. Is it occupied? Uh, well, it, it was uh, purchased. Somebody's rehabbing it to flip it. Okay, but I mean, it's oh, it's it's 
It's not currently occupied? No, no, nobody's living in it. It's just being rehabbed. Okay, well, there's a possibility, and, and remember, all I'm saying, speaking to here is abstractly. There's a possibility right. that you may be able to get the property back if there isn't somebody living in it. Hmm. Um, or how, uh, depending on how many times it's been flipped over. However, under uh, lender liability tort or perhaps even a breach of contract, there may be a possibility for um, one to recoup up to three times the value of the property, Ken. Ooh. You may not be able to get the property back, per se. That's right. Nice. But, you know, but see, on the, on the other side of that is also to say that uh, if a party moves forward with some sort of perhaps a lender liability suit um, or breach contract, and then they immediately followed it up. Uh, now, keeping in mind, it goes like this. If you were the rightful heir of that property, you know, in other words, uh -huh. you seasoned of that property, if you know what I'm talking about, to begin with. In other words, when there was nothing wrong with the chain of title when you came into possession of that property. Okay. If there was nothing wrong with it at that point in time, brother, and then they Mickey Mouse the um, the assess or the uh, the titles thereafter, mm -hmm. and there is a possibility you being the heir, you can come back in and take possession of that property. Now, the other parties in which purchased that property, they've right. got claims too now, but it's not against you. Right. Yes, the bank. Against whoever they purchased the property from. Right, right. Okay. okay. Uh, a chain of title assessment itself is done by a party that has been trained within um, assessment evaluation. Uh, there's okay. a checklist. There's 140 points and growing oh. that they go through. And they and they go through these documents, and what they do is they they look for the discrepancies or perhaps the defects and all that kind of stuff, Ken. Um, right. And it's people who have been trained specifically for that. It's not to say that persons that don't take the time and and put their nose to the stone couldn't figure it out. As a matter of fact, if uh, a very wonderful publication within that regard is called Clouded Titles, and that is by David Kreger. That's uh, K-R-I-E-G-E-R. -E -E okay. Now, this, that guy there, he's on top of his game. And he also trains Coda Preparers. Now, the gist of it is, is his book is pretty, uh, especially the May Day edition, it's worth every penny, you know, for, for those that want to understand it. And I would, I strongly recommend uh, all persons to get that book solely for this reason here. It is of my assessment and most of our assessment, if I take the liberty here to say so, is that in today's environment, most of the attorneys are not really familiar with this because it's kind of new. You know, the whole subject matter of using quiet title actions on real estate uh, home properties. It's not as if it didn't happen, you know, every once in a while. It's just that it was never at this level. And they were never trained for this kind of thing in law school. Uh, they okay. never picked up on it solely because they never seen the value of money in real estate because it's not just not there. And especially under quiet title actions, that money um, is paid directly to the attorney. You don't get that from the other side. 
remember, it's it's a declaratory judgment. So there's no money involved on a quiet title action. So that means that the homeowner has to fit the bill. However, the good news on that side is an attorney that is familiar with the lender liability tort breach of contract, they can go in there and get uh, recover uh, a substantial, up to a substantial chunk of change. So that you know that that makes them motivated. If you're following what I'm saying, money money motivates attorneys. Yeah. Now, within that context, again, is the idea is that the attorneys are not skilled within that arena. So it becomes, as as responsibility and accountability for all actions, it always falls upon us. We're always the accountable party, no matter how we want to flavor it. Even though we put our hope and faith and trust and all that other good stuff in other people, when 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 the rubber meets the road, it's always us. So. Yeah. The object is, instead of just um, giving the subject matter to an attorney and giving him, like, free range, you know, so that he could just take off, the object is is to work as an ally with your attorney. Are you you following what I'm saying? In other words, you work with the attorney as opposed to him just doing the stuff himself. And what does this do? It keeps the overall costs down to begin with. What equity. You know, that's that's really a, a wonderful thing. And right. if they're moving towards the lender liability tort breach of contract suits uh, within that there, then most of them uh, for a minimal retainer and um, and perhaps uh, and a cut of the uh, of the award, you know, commission based. Um, right. And they're pretty they're they're pretty apt to move forward in it because it there's money in there. There's plenty of money in there. Right. Oh, there's a lot of money on the table is what I'm getting at. So let me interject here, please. Uh, If you read that book, Clouded Titles, then you will be better suited to be able to help direct your attorney. Because you'll be pretty familiar with the subject, I would guess, after reading the book. At least enough familiar to where you can help your attorney and uh, direct it, direct that. And I would would underscribe that to say... uh, the, the the various calls and workshops that we've been given on they don't cost any uh, because that is a subject matter in which we speak into all the time so as questions come up they can be asked and we can speak into the into the publication okay should I uh, perhaps uh, start out with a, uh, a forensic investigator no I would suggest not and uh, I can't say one way or the other. But it goes, it goes like this. When we're looking at the subject matter of quiet title, it has nothing to do with the note, nothing to do about the note. It has everything to do about the title itself. Remember those two documents that one sat down and signed right from the beginning? It was either a deed or a mortgage. And then the second one was the, was the promissory note. Okay. Those are two separate documents, and even though there are two separate documents, they're supposed to both remain together at all times. Wherever that okay. note goes, after after we finish signing off on those, wherever that note goes, uh, that is regarded as the chain of custody of the note. And there are specific rules that deals with negotiable instruments that apply to that. That's right. that's that side. 
The other side is dealing with the assignments that go with that mortgage or the deed of trust. So there has to be certain releases of interest. Um, there ha uh, it has to be properly assigned to the party in which the note was uh, endorsed to. And if those parties, and if there shows any defects within that, when we look to quiet title action, again, it's not the note, it's dealing with the liens in which have been placed against the property. And since the originating instrument, in other words, where all the interest was formed, was based upon that deed or the mortgage. You, are you following what I'm saying? That was the first contract out the door. Right. And everything else was formed after that. So if there is a breach on the contract, which also leads towards lender liability issues or tortoise issues, that within that there, well, that's dealing with the note. But when it comes to the deed, uh, that's where we say if they, if they Mickey Moused that deed, or yeah, the deed or the mortgage, if they Mickey Moused that, brother, uh -huh. then that, that, and, then, and they foreclosed on the property and booted you to the curb, that may be considered a wrongful foreclosure. And you may be able to get your property back. Got it. Okay. So yeah. when you're looking at the chain of title, and as David said, uh, it is suggested, you know, to go through the book, get informed on that so that you can work in harmony with your attorney. And yeah. if and now, depending on how you move into this subject matter, um, there is a network of persons that work within CODA, which also means there is a network of attorneys that also work within CODA. If, let me just interject. CODA is a chain of title assessment, the OTA. Okay. Oh, okay. And the idea is, is that, again, we work in harmony as a, uh, the CODA preparer works in harmony as a paralegal with the attorney and, of course, in, in, you know, in, um, in a parallel, it's also supporting the homeowner as well. So the idea here is to get your ducks in a row. Uh, I wouldn't drag my feet. You said that it's been nearly a year now. Right. Yeah, uh, I would be I would be picking up speed on this. Uh, the reason being is that there are certain statutes of limitations that begin to kick in regarding matters regarding the note. Okay. Um. Now, not so much the deed, because under statutes of frauds, if they came and they stripped you of your property when they were not uh, lawfully, note the term lawfully as opposed to legally. Legally can, is, can be used as the colorful expressions to strip people of their property. Right. Lawfully is, yeah, that's a common law principle, and if they stepped in and they violated the statutes of fraud on real property, um, you can get the property back, brother. Oh. Okay, so that, that's really something to think about. Of course, there's no guarantees on anything, you know, but it's being placed out there. Uh, just say that 
the persons in which we have been working with, uh, the uh, the one attorney is uh, probably the most successful quiet title litigator in America right now. So you're oh. you're, you're right here on the front lines with uh, a group of individuals that have an in with that group of people right now. There's also right. another point to consider too. Uh, that is how an attorney can come in from another state utilizing the local attorney's license to present oral argument. Okay. So if the local attorney is not as familiar, then um, perhaps um, an attorney who has experience could fly in. Okay. Got it. Alrighty. So when you're interviewing your attorneys or um, talking to them on the phone in a, an interview, you might ask if they have any knowledge or any experience in uh, breach of contract or lender liability tort claim. Okay. I uh, Well, I just ordered the book while we were talking. So. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah, I didn't part around. <laughs> Amazon. Oh. $49. Yeah. Now, see, if you, if you would have held your breath just for a moment, I could have directed John over to Clouded Titles right over to Dave, and you could have just referred me, and you may have got yourself a few pennies off on that. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, so no big deal. Uh, I mean, the words are the same, whether it comes from Amazon or from him. Right, right, exactly. But uh, one of the advantages, if they get on top of this effective immediately, they're going to be conducting a workshop, uh, brothers, uh, this uh, June. Uh, it's going to okay. be held in the Chicago area. Uh, and oh. as, a matter, as a matter of fact, it's going to be an accelerated code of preparing, uh, preparing class and also a quiet title um, um, class as well. And the parties that are presenting this uh, is worth every penny uh, of the subject matter. I don't even know if he has it posted yet. I haven't checked it. But okay. uh, we were the first group uh, to, to know of this. Uh, I had spoke to Dave on the phone, and he released this information to me and says that it was okay to go ahead and release it. Uh, so you guys are the first ones to know about this. Uh, what area of the country are you in? Uh, I'm in I'm in uh, uh, Chicago suburbs. Wow, <laughs> couldn't be handier. <laughs> uh, well, the only thing I the only thing that's uh, uh, holding me back actually been holding me back since the last January was uh, mom getting a stroke and uh, she didn't get out of the nursing home until June and so uh, Ken knows what that that's like to uh, be the only health care provider for you know your your one of your parents so it's uh, yeah. Not easy. Ken, Not do you fun. remember Elijah? What's the, that? Are you familiar with the attorney Elijah? No. Okay. Uh, what about Johnson? Uh, no. Okay. Um, send an email over to info at niatru.com. Info at what? Niatru, N-I-A-T-R-U. You're breaking up. Try it again. N I A as in Apple T R U. 
info at niatrue.com. Got it. Okay. And uh, what do I what do I ask for there for information on the? Uh, just say I'm Ken looking for info Chicago Codas. That's sufficient. Okay. I suggest attending our weekend classes as well. They're alternating week uh alternating weekends, Ken. Okay. Uh, all righty. Well I certainly got my uh my work cut out for me. I got uh, we're supposed to have some help come here from uh from the state, but uh I don't know if you know anything about the Chicago area, but uh uh, the person was supposed to be coming from the north side of Chicago, taking a bus to come out here. Uh, they, they, they never made it. <laughs> I'm not surprised. So might have to find uh, other help. But uh, yeah, that was supposed to help me. That was going to give me some relief so I could get some things done around here. Oh, for uh, hopefully, um, at least this is actually the way that I view it. The, the subject matter. Is it? Uh-huh. Um, it's actually like seeing that proverbial light at the end of the tunnel, Ken. There's actually remedy that resides here. This is no more of that smoke and mirrors and you know dance around three times in a circle and hope and pray. <laughs> uh, th- th- there, this is actual because it's by their own system of law, and we're just holding them accountable to their own laws. And well, nobody works. And nobody- Nobody's held anybody account, uh, accountable in, in D.C., have they? Mm-hmm. Um, not they. Let's say that they have been paying off in the equitable side. They have nobody has been yet uh, facing the criminal prosecution. However, that is seemingly changing, at least to a degree. The subject matter has been breached in Florida. They're now having homeowners file complaints directly with the sheriff. In Florida, oh. if they feel that they got the they got the screw on. Oh well, uh, all right. Well, that's that's good news. But I was speaking in terms of the the numbskulls that are crapping all over the Constitution and sticking it out a blender. Yeah, well, hopefully at some point in time we'll be able to get that changed. Yeah, that'll you know? be beautiful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Actually, I would suggest they're probably very intelligent and know what they're doing. <laughs> oh. They just, they oh, just they've don't. Been, yeah, they've been they've been doing us for a long time. You know, when they mm-hmm. made corporations the as far back as making corporations into citizens and and putting puppets uh, uh, in office so they could control them mm-hmm. and creating all wars, et cetera, et cetera. We could go on and on and on. Uh, now they yeah, might very... be numbs they might be numbskulls in relation to their unawareness of consequences. Oh well I think they just think they're invincible. I mean they've been getting away with it for so long, but uh Yeah. We shall with time will tell, right? Time will tell. And I only use the numbskulls as uh, I, I I know you're right. They're they're very smart, you know, they're not the three stooges, but uh, uh, it's funny how people 
uh, you know, like that recent incident with the with the numbskull on, on the bus uh, doing doing his racist chant, and people are up in arms over that, but they're not up in arms over these idiots just crapping on the Constitution. You know, so, you know, what's wrong with this picture? I would say right. the media is what's drawing the attention. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And and, and uh, uh, I'm sure you read it where John Swinton, who was what the New York New York Times or something around 1900, and they were uh, at some kind of party for the newspaper man, and he stands up and he says, "Well, I don't know what this nonsense is all about. Uh, uh, giving a pet ourselves on the back here for doing such a good job because." You know it, and I know it. We're paid to keep the truth out of the newspapers. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think the first time I heard that was with Kennedy. Kennedy had made a speech giving the the value um, uh, to per, uh, pretty well squashing the information in the media. Uh, the next oh. one, if I'm not mistaken, was Brzezinski um, under Carter. Uh, I believe that he also gave uh, um, credits uh, as the state that they would not they would not have been able to move the new world order to where it was without the support and assistance of the media. But then oh. all we had to do is take a look at who owns the media. Right. Right. So when we recognize that uh, all of the media is within the hands of six corporations, that pretty well tells you there's a monopoly on it. Oh, yeah. And it's just uh, sad the number of people that hear that and they couldn't be more, uh, couldn't be less interested and want to just turn on the sports channel and catch up next to game. But are you telling me that you don't know the stats of all the basketball players or baseball players and <laughs> all that good stuff? Uh, I'm sorry to say, uh, I guess they could call me a communist because I don't pay attention to any of that crap. Okay, you're a communist. I yeah, mean, well, since you made the offer, that is. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Well, um, I would look more towards the positive elements. I realize that there's a lot of stuff that's going out there, and wherever we're drawn, I do believe that we're called towards that um, and where we're so inspired. Um Many of us have things that are on our plates that we're trying to get rid of. And I do believe that uh, those of us that have been exposed to the various principles of administrative processes and the commercial law, um, coming up to speed on how to implement those concepts within the system of law in which we're in right now. Uh, And as we pull these things together, which it's an awakening of its own, um, I do feel yeah. I do feel that uh, the next wave of persons that will be moving into the political arena is going to be much wiser um, to what's going on, and it, whether it starts as grassroots from city to city, or if it manages to get itself legislated immediately within states, I do believe that many of the states are starting to wake up within this regard as the federal land grabs, uh, where, they're made, where the federal government has been making, um, uh, claiming uh, historic or national monument or wilderness or whatever. They're just reaching out and claiming millions of acres of uh, state lands. Right. And 
states are beginning to go, whoa, 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 no, no. And yeah. so they're, they're beginning to stand up right now against it. So I see that the tide, you know, it's, it's not like a tide tide, but you can see that the tide is beginning to change. There, there, there's a change happening. Yeah, I do believe it's going to take a little bit of time. As we're learning these things, we can begin implementing um, perhaps some of the necessary paperwork. Remember, there is no such thing as a claim to make any changes within the system unless you follow Rule 3 of federal rules to begin with, and that is a complaint must be filed. Now, so that means we can sit there and protest. We can dance up and down in High Park. We can, you know, sit here, sit there, scream and shout. It doesn't mean anything until there is a paper filed. And when we begin to learn how to file those paper, then you get people jumping up and down and you file a piece of paper according to what's being jumped up and down about. Right. Then you can start moving for actions, and you can get things changed. Yeah. Remember, the pen is mightier than the sword, brother. Yeah, you're right. At least for the next generation until nobody knows how to read. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> They're really working hard on that Leave No Child Behind Act. <laughs> yep. Okay, Kenny, um, are you you done, Ken? Um, Because I have a question for somebody on the call now. She's a little reluctant to speak, and she asked me if I'd ask, and she would listen. I hope that's okay with you, Ken. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, by all means, go ahead. All right, so this um, friend of mine has um, had um, bought a car for her son. Her son's in his 20s, he's in college, but he still lives at home. Um, She outright owns her house. Uh, there was some insurance on the car. Um, he ended up uh, wrecking the car. Um, he flipped it, got lady's car over, and it's a pretty bad, pretty bad accident, I guess. No one died, but it's a pretty bad accident. She's she's fearful that she didn't have enough coverage on her insurance. She's not really sure about that. I asked her to take a look at that and see whether or not she did. And she's worried about her house, whether or not because her son was driving the car and even though the car was in her name and the insurance policy was in her name that which covered her son, even though he is an adult, whether or not she had enough and whether or not they could come after the house. So that's kind of the question she's um, asking. So I'm the church on the call. So I well, told that. Persons can make oh. claims against anything, right? We should know that. Mm-hmm. Oh. Um, if, if the house is not protected, meaning that there, it isn't encumbered somehow or another, then it opens it up to risk. Um, If the object, again, is outstanding, um, we'll say outstanding debt, you know, based upon, you know, some sort of, um, we'll say, you know, the car accident itself. And if I'm understanding the nature of the question, it's stating that the party may not have enough insurance to be able to uh, cover whatever the medical bills or punitive damages or whatever may come down the pike based upon that accident. That's true. Um, If that would be the case, is it possible that they could come after the property? Uh, I would say yes, it is possible. Um, You know, there's no sense in 
pulling punches here, it's yes, it is quite possible. Um, however, um, is do you know if there has already been a judgment levied or how? No, this just happened. The accident happened oh, a week ago, something like that. It's not been that long. So, is, um, is, does she own the home outright? Do you? Know? Outright, yes, she owns the home outright, totally outright. Okay. A folder maybe might be a good idea to put it in trust, in an LLC or something like that, um, before anything's ever happened, and uh, may help her. If it was moved, although it could be challenged because, like, it, it would be considered in a, a gray area um, because I, although a judgment hasn't already been come out, um, it's not to say that they couldn't uh, say, oh, the person did that intentionally mm -hmm. and hide their assets. Um, but it certainly helps to stall um, them from just simply seizing property. Um, in that light, uh, if the party is not familiar with what a friendly lien is as consideration, if it were me, uh, I might consider um, at least placing perhaps a friendly lien on my property. I told her that too. You mean you mean you, that you gave that kind of an opinion? Well, I, was, I was trying to help her a little bit. I thought maybe it might be something she may want to consider. So. Um, yeah, the next is is um, you know again a lot of attorneys and and this is one of the things that people tend to overlook um, is that many attorneys offer like a free consultation for up a, up to an hour of time, and if they uh, reduce their story because they usually end up wasting all their time telling a story, if they just hit the facts. And state, you know, and then give the floor to the attorney to be able to respond. Um, they may be able to listen to what it is that the attorney is saying, uh, gather uh, the approaches in which he is offering, and which is not to say that you can't go to another attorney and also get another free consultation. You, if you're following what I'm saying here. Mm -hmm. So, the so the way to uh, data mine. Um, the various ways that um, that a person could protect their assets, because I, I mean, there's there one would have to investigate, you know, their uh, their standing, you know, to to know what could be done. So, um, you know, and which would also go to the severity of the crime, if there was, or the severity of the accident, if there was other mitigating factors such as, you know. Uh, was the driver drunk? Was he on drugs? You know, was he uh, careless and reckless? You know, the, there may be other mitigating factors in there as well. If it was uh, essentially an act of God slipping on the ice, flipped over type type thing like that there, it may be uh, other forms of protection. So there's other things in which would have to be discussed. The one thing that's been, uh, she, that was being brought was the insurance uh, company was asking her, uh, they wanted an affidavit. They want her son to sign an affidavit. I'm like, why? Now, I still, even for me, I still can't understand why you would want an affidavit. Do you would you want this from the police officer Dating or whatever? What in the affidavit. Like, that's the question. I mean, is it the the car accident? What happened in the accident was what I was I'm thinking the affidavit's about. And I I said that I, I believe that was just uh, they were just mining on their son and the liabilities is not so much. They're trying to protect themselves as an insurance company because they don't want have to pay a claim if they don't have to. So 
why would you want to confess your sins or give out any information you can, even though they is your the the um, the company you're paying for? So I, I kind of like you know want to throw that out there. How long too, was so. the accident? How long ago was the accident? A week ago. Oh, like I said, a week ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's certain investigative reports in that um, preliminary reports that have to be filed within a timely manner, and. Um, yeah, I would strongly suggest that she may want to talk to um, an, uh, an attorney. Um, mm-hmm. And as far as why are they looking for an affidavit? Well, because it's a form of deposition, right? Mm-hmm. And what they're trying to do at this time is, in my assessment, an insurance company is always looking to, uh, to reduce its risk. Yep. So what it's uh, doing is to make determinations whether or not they can hang this thing around that boy's neck or around her neck. Uh, yeah. I'd happen to pay any claim at all. So what I would sign any affidavit if it were me before I would write any um, affidavit um, or uh, stand opposed. I would seek uh, representation to find out just where I stand on this field before I go any further. That would be me. Yeah. Because, I mean, there, there's other relevant questions in which um, would have to be asked and certain personal disclosures in which would have to be revealed. This is not the place for that. Yeah. Um, what, what about if the, uh, uh, you know, to actually, you know, for somebody to be able to provide a, uh, um, a legal, um, provide legal advice, and that, that would have to come from an attorney. Yeah. yeah. What, what about if her son uh, uh, signed a, an affidavit taking responsibilities? From such and such a day, put it in the newspaper, blah, blah, blah. He's responsible for all that. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, it still deals with culpability, Ken. Yeah. Uh, it was just, uh, just a thought. Well, see, they're using the same premise. I mean, if you want to put it into the abstract, why do you think that they're going after Smith and Wesson because somebody shot somebody down in, in Georgia? That's absurd. Well, that's the that's the communist. Oh uh, no, I'm saying just recognize the abstract of what I'm referring to. I'm referring to culpability, and okay. and since they're having a time going after the gun manufacturers, what were what was their next election? Go after the ammunition, <laughs> the manufacturers of the ammunition. So, in other words, what we're speaking to again is degrees of culpability. You know, like where where in this soup are you? And so that's that's essentially what we're speaking to here. So um, that's why they look to join parties um, or even, you know, uh, put in for cross claims against persons, you know, other people within the in to, in order for them to identify where the deep pockets are. Right. Looking for the deep pockets. Yeah. Well, the, does uh, does Black's Law have the same definition as the regular dictionary on culpability? I don't know what Black's Law you're looking at or what other dictionary you're looking at. Black's Law has uh, interesting. It um, it depends on what you, how you want to look at Black's Law. Recognize that Black's Law came into the creation uh, right there in the eight, um, uh, middle of the 1800s. Yeah. And what was its purpose? It was to usher in statutory law by the uh, statutory modification of terms. 
So if you wanted to uh, gain a principal, uh, the only legally uh, adopted law dictionary is Bouvier's. It was congressionally approved. Now, does it mean that we don't use Black's Law? Yes, we do. But we'll note that now Black's Law is up to edition 10. It just came out with a new one. Uh, So we're up to 10 now. And I don't have one sitting here in front of me or else I just flip it open and take a look. When they issue new um, editions of Black's Law, does that invalidate the previous editions? Because, and I asked that question because of that anti-government um, handbook. The no, author of that stated no, that they use antiquated def- legal definitions in old law books. Well, see, what they try to do is they try to push through custom and tradition to move terms to be uh, archaic, you know, or obsolete. Um, but the, the issue of what we fall back on as long as it's identified within a law dictionary, then we can, and it, since it is published, we can use that definition. So I will have one party that seeks to use, we'll say, the latest edition. If we're drawing upon an earlier edition, and as long as it's not been identified as obsolete or archaic, then the issue is, is it precedes that definition. That As I understand what you just said, the key is if it's published, then we could draw on that as our understanding of the definition of that term. Yes, and and, uh, and the beauty of that is it doesn't matter where it's published. So if you went to Dr. Zeus and yeah. pulled something out of there, it's good. It's published. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I just... Uh... Looking up at uh, maxims, I found Bouvier's maxims of law, and one of the ones I just popped onto was, it cannot be called a deed which does not hold out or persevere. Could you say that again? You broke up on me. Sorry about that. uh, It cannot be called a deed which does not hold out or persevere. Yes. But you see, in that same breath is also to recognize what colorable expression of law is. You see, if I were to turn around and say you have purple hair, and you do not rebut that claim, what what I said is entered into the record as fact. Even if you're standing over there with black hair, bald head, or whatever, it doesn't matter. Because right, right. it's not rebutted, right? Exactly. So, in order to, so to be able to persevere, the subject matter is is that we cannot allow a presumption, an allegation, or a brief that is not substantiated in fact to be entered for admission without challenge. So we enter objection on that. Got it. Again, if if I haven't um, drilled this point home, 
And it's not really that difficult, especially if they're taken in bite-sized digestible portions, is to take a look at the federal rules of evidence and the federal rules of procedure. Now, the reason I say that is that those are what is regarded as common amongst all the states. Now, each of the states adopt their own rules of evidences and rules of procedure, so we would want to, you know, check those uh, statutes to our, um, the federal statutes to our own state statutes, you know, just to assure that they, you know, that they're conforming or if there is modification in there that we understand what those modifications are. <clears throat> but see, by those rules of evidences and the rules of procedure, it's to understand that if we do not abide by those terms, it, with the, because it, it deals, it's technicalities. If we don't abide by those terms, it doesn't matter how righteous or how mm -hmm. just our cause is, that we don't stand a snowball's chance because, well, let's just say that because we fail to follow the rules. Yeah. And, and that's what the nut of this is. So, Although many of us came up through that administrative, you know, you know, the sovereign administrative information, uh, what we didn't, what wasn't put together for the continuity was how to actually use that in today's system. Because all of that in which they're speaking to is predicated on pre-1938 law, which was the common law pleading, which is not the same system of law that we're in today. So the rules in which we use today are not the rules in which they're using within the private administrative processes per se. However, it's embodied within those rules. So we have to um, extrapolate those out of those rules of evidences and rules of procedure. And when we follow those, then we can use the what could be regarded as the private administrative processes as being informal in in one happenstance, informal discovery, um, which is also recognized as saying seeking to resolve a subject matter prior to litigation. That is considered acting within honor. Mm -hmm. So that right there under informal um, discovery or in you know seeking to resolve the subject matter. Now, if it goes to move into litigation, then the next part becomes formal discovery. So based upon those two elements, when we would first move, well, let me reframe that. Before we even move into formal discovery, we would have some form of evidentiary hearing. And within the evidentiary hearing, again, under the rules of evidences and procedure, don't you see how it would weigh within our favor to be able to introduce uh, what we sought as a remedy prior to ever even entering into litigation. Hey, let me ask a question. What is that called? Good faith, due diligence, uh, what? Yeah, actually, that's both of them. And respectfully, if we look up the term diligence, we'll note that there's several different types of diligence. Right. And within this regard, I would call it necessary diligence. Necessary. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So anyways, we end up being able to use these things as to say, look, you know, I've just kind of put this in a nutshell type um, example. 
Your Honor, uh, we, you know, I've, we've, I've already been asking the, my opponent here to resolve the subject matter before we ever came here. And within that, and, and since they were not willing to even work with me outside of this court, it really draws suspect on their claim. Why is it that they didn't want to resolve this outside of, outside of court and they wanted to move it immediately into litigation? You see how it draws suspect on the other party for the <laughs> actions that you're taking? Now, see, within that right there, that falls under another one of those rules, and I do believe it's rule, uh, I want to think it's eight. It, it may be rule six, but I believe it may be rule eight. Um, it's one or the other, I think, that deals with accountability uh, for filings, uh, where if um, a person who is, is moving forward with complaint has to be, as Dave had stated, with good faith. And, and so now it casts a shadow against their good faith because they were not willing to seek to resolve this matter outside of court, which generally most things are of equity. And so they, they value the fairness of whatever it is, and then if it's dealing with negotiable instruments, you don't have to go to court to either uh, restructure something or uh, reduce a debt or extend a debt or in raise the interest rates or anything like that, if you're following what I'm saying as far as uh, litigation goes. You don't have to go to court for that. So the object is, is that if you were seeking to restructure something or try to resolve something prior to litigation, and the other party was not willing to work with you, then that right there casts a shadow against them as far as their honor. Why are they doing that? So it draws suspect to their motives. That's one of the advantages of starting to recognize how to take the paperwork in which we learned about notice of intent, notice of default, notice <coughs> of agreement, and be able to start moving those things into um, into the public, how they can be moved into the public or recognized and into the public. That is the key, is you find remedy in the public. That's the only place you're going to find remedy. Yeah. So do we have any other questions, comments, suggestions, ideas, Dave? Or I don't. You know, the only thing I could say is all the people that were doing that common law um, stuff where, you know, they're doing that common law this, common law this, it's where are you going to get your remedy at? And it's going to public court. And, you know, your remedy is there. So and if they don't recognize it in the outside, how are you going to get your remedy? So, you know, and, you know I'm with you, Kenny. You know, you have, to go, you have to go to public court in order to get your win. So. Yeah. Well, uh, there's a, a gentleman that I know that's um, up in the, in the Illinois area and a, a very bright man. And uh, he decided that he was going to get involved with that um, OID stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh-oh. And he started monkeying around with that. And um, then he started receiving the frivolous file notices from, uh, from the ABC guys. And uh, one thing led into another. Every time he responded to them, they just, you know, cha-ching, sent him another one, cha-ching, sent him another one. And they pushed them up over a hundred thousand. Wow! Uh, in frivolouses, and then they got tired of his responses, and they dragged him in. And he figured that he was going to 
uh, be able to go in there and use his his knowledge of the private and thought that he was going to be able to use that. Now, again, he's a bright man, and he is very familiar with what the public side is. That's that's what really got my goat. But, no, he decided that he was going to go in there and, and seek to stand within his private-type capacity, and he got 18 months. Oh. And so he's sitting in he's sitting in lockdown right now. That hurts. No, he won't be out until uh oh. seventeen. Oh. You know, beginning of uh two thousand seventeen. And that and and the thing about it is is that he could have resolved this in a different manner. Now I've supported people that have been involved with OID to where they were slapped up real big on the amount of frivolouses. And um, I got it down, the, the one party that I, I got it down, all the way down to the very first uh, frivolous claim. Um, so in other, we reduced it from 60K down to five. Wow. And uh, in my assessment, they were one letter and one hearing away from getting that removed. Um, but they decided it they were tired of going any further and they just says enough was enough so they they paid the 5000 to end it and so that's what they did and so now they're they don't have to worry about any of that nobody's going to jail they're now getting their refund checks and all that stuff and so they're happy so if they're happy they're uh, I'm happy I I would have liked to seen them follow through you know but uh hey um, it was them. So, I mean, I do know that it can be mitigated down. I, I've supported people in doing that. And there's no more questions for the call or anything? Anybody got any Concerns or anything you want to speak on? Well, right here. Oh, and Dave, um, the the thought came to me. It dawned on me um, when we were talking about an attorney from one state coming into another state, mm-hmm. um, and what they're doing is they're operating under the bond, but that's only when it's accepted by the court. Oh, okay. uh, and generally speaking, the court permits it because you know they're all part of the same organization. If you're following mm-hmm. the same, right? So it's not, it's not very common or uncommon um, for them to do this. But what it's called is pro hoc vice. Oh, okay. I thought reciprocity was part of the term, but yeah, pro hoc advice, pro hoc vice. J C hack. It may be, it may be pronounced hack, pro hoc vice. Um, hang on, um, P-R, it'd be three words, uh, P-R-O, um, H-A-C, D-I-C-E. D-I, vice, huh, okay. Well, thank you for that term. I only knew of the principle, not the term that they utilized. Yeah, that's, uh, it, it's, it allows an attorney from another state to enter into the bar of another state 
uh, and not be charged for unlicensed uh, practice of law because an attorney can be charged for unlicensed practice of law too mm-hmm. by crossing that bar, you know, from one state to another. Right. Some states, and um, you, you can check into it, but there are some states that already have a, an established reciprocacy. So if one has a bar card in one state, they may have three other states that they can practice in. That's right. Oh, okay. Um, but that's only upon that reciprocity agreement. That's not mm-hmm. true across all of America, but it is with some of the states. So one would want to check um, with their local attorney um, for that. But again, we have uh, a network of attorneys, and it's growing. Um, so we can, for those that are moving into um, litigation and whatnot, we can begin setting them up with uh, speaking with attorneys and uh, code of preparers and uh, give them at least an idea of where things can go. And um, then if there is an attorney that is within their state that is part of the network, then we have attorneys on the outside that uh, will consult with them and, if need be, move into a pro hoc vice uh, to come in and litigate on the party's behalf. I believe that Bob stated to my local friend here that he would be willing to advise, mm-hmm. consult with an attorney on, on a case. Yeah, Bob's a Bob's a wonderful man. He's a he's a giving man. If you if you get opportunity to meet him, by all means, take that advantage. Uh, he's he's got a heart of gold. I, I don't know how to say it. You know, he's been litigating for I don't know what it was like thirty years or something, thirty five years. Uh, he's retired now, but that, I'm telling you what that that man's bulb has not dimmed over the years. And he's willing to put his his uh, butt out on the line for people because he's been watching what's been going on all these years, and and uh, that's why he started his um, his own website on that subject matter, and also um, uh, publication as well. So for those that want additional information and whatnot on that, they can contact info at niatru.com, and we can forward that information over to him as well. Quick question, actually, on you were mentioned unauthorized practice of law. We talked about this probably about a year ago, but since the, the time has gone by, I was wondering if you are familiar with any particular court sites or court rules that in federal bankruptcy we had an attorney file the paperwork uh, against the uh, a claim against a petitioner, and they actually weren't authorized at that time to practice in the federal court. Mm-hmm. They were a state-approved bar, but not in the Fed. And we filed that the initial complaint, the motion for release today, and the claim should be uh, dismissed. Okay. But we didn't have a okay. claim. I, I already see where this is going. See, the, the, moment that he, the moment that he filed his appearance, you, you yeah. know what I'm referring to? He had to file his appearance paper. The moment that he filed that appearance is when the background check should have done, and before he ever began his pleadings, you should have already objected to his his appearance. 
But because, uh, because remember, left unrebutted, right? Now, right. now the subject matter is, can you get it reversed? Now, I don't know if you can go as is. The, is there already been a conclusion of the case? Has it already been decided? Uh, in that matter, yeah, well, there's been a colorful claim, and there's also been a motion uh, for relief from relief of stay uh, granted. Okay, but it's not been concluded then. Well, the bank actually the bankruptcy, from what I understand, has also been dismissed as of this uh, probably six months ago. Oh, <clears throat> did the but person lose their property? At the moment, no. They're still actually in the property. The bank hasn't come after it and done any unlawful detainer or anything as of now. But uh, I was just going back. You know, something to think about. Just just entertain. I can't. Again, I can't give legal advice. I'm not an attorney. The object may be, if it were me, I may consider something along the lines of saying there has been new evidences that has been brought to my attention. You following mm -hmm. where this is going, brother? Good idea. Yeah. Yeah, we actually did that, and we actually well, we actually brought that issue up in the court, but the judge dismissed it because there was nothing, uh, no, 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 what the court cite or uh, rule or law to enforce it. Okay, so in other words, you didn't bring the law with you when you said that, right? Whatever okay. federal rule was. Correct. So we're. I was just wondering if you happen to know if there is a federal rule that basically states that the pleading should be dismissed. I I and we I don't know if I can move for, you know, move as far as having the pleading itself dismissed. However, being that there is evidences that has now come to your attention which may have affected the outcome of the ruling, that is an area in which you may want to explore. Hmm. All right. And now within within that guideline right there. And, and the reason that I'm saying that is that if a person illegally, unlawfully, now remember, a person that's entitled to enforce, even if they illegally or unlawfully came into possession of property, real estate itself is protected under the statutes of fraud. So even if they're using colorable expressions in order to seize property, if evidence has come up to the person who is legally and lawfully seasoned of that property, they can go back and challenge the ruling. However, the issue is whatever, the, whatever was offered in the BK pleadings in the first place, is there grounds on that for the appeal? All right, now, before I would, was there ever an appeal request? Did you no. have, was there ever a motion for an appeal? By the person who filed the bankruptcy? No. Okay. Good. Uh, well, that's my assessment. Good. Because what I would consider is going in to have a review as to state that new evidences have been brought to the table and for the judge to hear these evidences, which may have affected his, uh, his decision. Are, are you following me? This right here opens the door potentially under an appellant review. Now, remember, an appellant review only see only reviews if there was any error in the proceedings. Correct. Right. Okay. So you can't introduce new 
evidence is in an appellant review. However, subject to the matter, such as new evidences have come to the attention, blah, blah, open up for the review, then you may be able to have a judicial review where the panel uh, says, what is the evidences in which you're speaking of? And now that they're not going to try the case, but they may go, uh, what is it called, uh, de, uh, de novo, and state okay. new trial and move it back to the BK court for a new trial. And that way you refile the pleading. I, I hear you on that one. I think in um, two parts is, number one, the person who we're assisting uh, with information is, like, pretty tired. <laughs> should say yeah. You know, beat up and tired after multiple years of this, and he's been going at this for literally five years. Yeah. And I'm thinking the methodology with Dakota and the because uh, this, if you're, I don't know if you remember, but there was like so many different points that had fraud and, and possibilities of assignments, et cetera. Bits and points but, come out. I I kind of remember sporadic throughout the years. Yeah, yeah, I know. There's like all these other cases, but. The, the the thing is, I, I'm thinking that we might be able to utilize an attorney to go after him with the slander and then chase him down after for maybe damages for mail fraud and things of that nature and set a lot of have an attorney attempt to settle that out of court. It'd probably be a more efficient manner. Well, yeah, if if a person's going to consider the the subject matter of perhaps various RICO violations, is that you know, like for uh, here's like just for purposes of entertainment. If you take a look at like uh, the deed filings, you'll note that upper in the, up in the upper left-hand corner, there will be something worse the effect of after filing, uh, return to, and then they'll have some firm or something listed there. Do you know what I'm sure. talking about? Yes. Okay. That those people there that that's being returned to. Uh, if they are part of the persons that are involved with slandering the title, I'm not talking about chain of custody of note. I'm talking about the title itself. That right there can raise to the elements of mail fraud. Hmm. All right. Are you are, are you following where that's going? Uh, slightly. If you found on a little bit, because one would be just a, an additional piece of information on this particular property. Well, what we're looking at is leverage. That uh, If you're speaking towards the issue of settlement. Sure, absolutely. You know, you're, you know the idea is is uh, that that's kind of going towards the or else statement. If you're, if you, I, I know that you, you're familiar to a degree with the, um, what is considered the private administrative process and trying to get something in camera, right? Correct. Okay. We know that in camera, the is is that there are certain elements in which are being discussed in the public, you know, out in the public arena, that when you go back in chambers, uh, that's not necessarily the same subject matter that you're talking about. And when you get in camera, that's where the or else statement comes in, whereby, like, in order to get in camera, goes <sighs> lines of something like this, words to the effect of, it goes something like this. Objection, whatever whatever the opponent is saying. You enter objection. Objection. Your Honor, before there are any damages created to all persons in attendance, there are 
certain elements in which this court may be interested in reviewing in camera. So the defense seeks sidebar. You with me? I'm following. Okay, so now that right there moves it into the private element. You know, you'll get to go up and stand alongside of the bar. He covers his microphone and blah, blah, blah. Now, at that point in time, you say that if the, if the if counsel is going to continue in his current course, what's going to happen is it's going to open up uh, the possibility where the defense is going to have to um, uh, take leave of this court and refile their petition. You know, uh, are you following what I'm saying? Refile their complaint to where they're filing a counterclaim against the individual and the subject matter of fraud is going to be brought up and what those elements of fraud are. Are you following what I'm saying? Uh, pretty much, yeah. Okay, Go so ahead. in other words, you're not saying the word fraud out in public. You're saying it sidebar. Right. And then you're listing the elements of the fraud sidebar, so it's private, so it's an or else statement. In other words, if counsel is going to continue in this matter, now don't use these words, but right. if counsel is going to continue in, the, in this current manner, then it leaves the defense no other choice but to, and that's where you follow in with the, the counterclaim. I would take leave, refile for fraud, and these subject matters when it comes out is not going to look good upon counsel, and it's not going to look good against this client, and this is why. And then you can start going through and saying, and counsel was to verify these documents before he submitted them for evidence, so that makes him equally culpable for his actions. So uh, the defense is going to seek to have counsel sanctioned for what he's doing. You following where, I'm, where this is going? I, I got you. I got okay. you now. So, so now all of a sudden, counsel is like dancing because he's pissed off of what you're about to do. <laughs> okay. Why and, do I like it so much? And now the next part of it is is counsel is providing testimonies here whereby he is acting as if he has firsthand witness. And if that's going to be the case, then I seek to have counsel sworn in as witness for cross-examination. <laughs> That's great. Okay. So now it puts counsel on the spot. You see where that's going? Yep. Mm -hmm. And then it's, are you sh is counsel sure that he wants to continue in this manner before he consults with his client? So you'll see that that right there is going to set it up for a postponement. Right. You see what? And so now he's going to have to go back and talk to his client. Then they'll probably contact you. Or if they don't contact you within five to ten days, you send a notice over there to have a settlement conference. So, so I, I'm getting all of that uh, on a separate note. Is are you, uh, are we here on the phone set up with an attorney in California, San Jose Pacific area? Uh, that is yeah, actually that's yes, we have, that's where the um, the most prominent litigator is uh, stationed is out in California. Okay. Well, I've, I'll, should I get together with you or Nancy on the phone later on? Because I'd like to set up an appointment to speak about the particular case. Because this one is pretty straightforward. It has one big glaring problem where the assignment of deed of trust was signed on August 28th, uh, if I remember correctly, the date of 2008, which was 27 days prior to Chase uh, taking up the, the, what was the name of that default company now? I totally. Mama? Like, what's that? Mama? Washington Mutual? 
Washington, yeah, Wamu. There you go. They they uh, acquired Wamu, uh, but then actually acquired, they acquired their assets, but not their loans. But getting away from that, that was actually 27 days after the assignment that they have written as from Chase to Bank of America. So, are, are you, know, you talking about the assignment or the endorsement on the note? This is the assignment of deed of trust. Okay. From from and it's signed 27 days prior before the Chase uh, the alleged Chase uh, you know vice president. Could sign it. Okay. So it's, yeah, it's so in other words, we can see right now that there's a service issue. Right, and, and and in addition, this one actually was securitized, and according to the securitization audit we did, it actually has closed, and everybody in there has been paid off, whatever that might mean from a legal standpoint. I'm yeah. not so sure, but that's also involved in that. So it seems like a pretty good case for an attorney, in my opinion. But uh, it sounds like yeah, I can I can hear on two sides right there to begin with. There's Lender liability is one. That's blaring. The other side is breach of contract. That's dealing with the note. I mean, that's just blaring. I can see that. And then if you spoke to the assignments being um, filed out of order, then the issue right there is definite slander against title. Uh, so we're talking about a chain of title has been corrupted at that point in time. So that means whoever is claiming to be in possession of the property or you know making claims against it, they actually have no legal claim on it. If Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so yeah, um, yeah uh, I would suggest uh, ultimately, yeah, I would say this right here, uh, due to the nature of this being a public call, just send an a email over to info at NIATRU, and, okay. um, and we'll respond to that. Fantastic. All right. Okay. Uh, 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 you'll get a response tomorrow, though, all right? All right, no problem. Okay, I'm done. Neil's complete. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Nancy, do you want to bring this call to a close? Are there any other questions or comments before we close? It's already closed. <laughs> Actually, well, yes, I can... yes. I'd like to bring Nancy? this. This is a different, Nancy, and I'd like to say thank you to everyone. This has been truly inspiring like fresh air in the springtime, which is what we're starting to get. This is very, very grounding and very, very good. Thank yep. you. As usual. Thank you all. Hey, we've had, uh, here's something inspirational. We've had three days that's been above freezing. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> now that is inspirational. We've had three straight days from shorts and T-shirts. Uh, uh, what, we just have to get the sadomasochism in there. <laughs> <laughs> it's been cold here since October, folks. Oh. I don't express that. Since October. That's so brutal. You know. And well. It's just, uh, it's, and now when I take a look at the lakes, the way, like right now, um, the lake, which is just, just, just north of me here. Uh, that puppy is 97% froze over. Now, the one that's a little bit west to it, yeah, it's only 3% covered now. It's all melted out. Good. Oh, wow. You no? Know? So. How does that work? Uh, it, it means we get icebergs going over the falls. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, you're by the Niagara. Well, okay. my heart and my blessings go out to you because 
There was a time we lived in a place where the first snowfall hit September 25, and the last one left on Father's Day. So I do understand. <laughs> and it was below. So I, I get it. <laughs> oh, God. Well, here's one just to, to roll out with. Uh, my wife and I, it was the beginning of July, Anchorage, Alaska. There were still still piled up in the corner of a parking lot. And the, and my wife turned to me and she says, that's it. We are out of here. <laughs> you know, yeah. and that's crazy. Now, I don't know if you guys are following, if you know what the Iditarod is. It's a sled race. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, they had to move it to the other side of the mountain because there was not enough snow. They had to reroute. They had to reroute the Iditarod. That's unbelievable. No. We got all their freezing ass cold weather too, huh? Oh my yes! Uh, if you guys have been watching, they were having forty degree temperatures while we were sitting here at ten and fifteen below. Uh, well, I, I, I was marking about here than up there, but at least they did not report to your area, Kenny. <laughs> uh, old. I, I lived up in Alaska for eighteen years, so I had my fair share of cold. I didn't think I would see that ever again here. Even understand the nature of buffalo uh, area. Nevertheless, it's my goodness. This has been a very long and cold winter. Thank you for warming all our hearts and our our brains and our minds. Well, and thank our- you all for your participation. I mean, that's what keeps the fires burning, folks. Thank I, you, Nancy. I do hope that you had the opportunity for those that are on the call and have been sticking around with the workshops and whatnot, uh, going through those codes that have been made available for you. They're important, uh, being relevant to note arguments. And the reason why this is being brought up in this context is thus. The subject matter of negotiable instruments also falls under the subject matter of security instruments. We should recognize that a deed or a mortgage is also reflective of a security instrument. Uh-huh. Now, although they're not mentioned specifically within the commercial code, what we will recognize is that the opponent will immediately begin speaking into note arguments. That's what they do. Not uh-huh. a one of them, it seems, knows anything about a quiet title action. And for good reason. They're not taught this stuff in law school in any ways. So the idea behind it is that when they jump into the various note arguments, to be familiar with the subject matter to whatever it is that they say, because there's many angles in which they can come in at. And if you're familiar with the, you know, it's not saying you have to memorize the codes. That's not it at all. It's just to understand the nature of them, where they are, so that you, you have a feel for them. So when they bring up various elements, of those codes, you know how to capture that and then turn it right back into a deed argument by using the same code. So it's it's understanding how to bring them both together is what I'm speaking to. And since the subject matter of negotiable instruments is from their side of the pipe, that's the pipe, the end in which they're looking at is the interest in which is formed on the note we're looking at from the other end of the pipe, which is all the instruments and conveyances, which has 
been stimulated or generated from the original contract. So we're looking at one end of the pipe. They're looking at the other. And respectfully, a court is synonymous with a bank. (laughs) So when you talk about the matter of note, the judge is already on the opponent's side, right from the jump. I mean, that's where the bias lies, if you understand what I'm saying, even though they're supposed to be unbiased. That's where they sit. So unless a party has the capacity to remove the presumptive nature of a claim on a note issue when, in fact, you want to speak about a deed, is to know how to grab that argument and say, oh, I understand what he's saying. He's claiming that he's in possession of the note, which also would mean that he must be in possession of the deed. Uh, Barry Fisherman, you following what I'm saying? That it is required that under presentment or under delivery or under transfer, if he's claiming that he received it under transfer, then that would mean that he's claiming that he has 100% transfer rights in order to be the duly qualified holder in order for to enforce the instrument. And with him claiming that he can enforce the instrument, then that would also mean that he's in possession of both the deed and the note. Where are they? You know what? I, I made that the argument on my on my paperwork uh, that they separated the note and the deed. And uh, I think they just ignored it, and it was my fault that I didn't follow up on it. But that's uh, you, have, way. you have to provide the supporting evidences of the claim. But you see, within that context is to recognize how significant discovery is. Within okay. the interrogatory, in which may have been assent to the opponent, that no. may have been one of the questions which were asked such as, are you claiming that you're the person that's entitled to enforce the instrument? So they either admit or deny. And they're going to admit because they want to enforce, correct? Right. Oh, then what's the follow-up statement? Are you in possession of the instrument? Well, we got a copy here. You know, that's not the issue. Remember, it's admit or deny. Are you in possession of the instrument? Well, they'll say, yeah, but they'll say yes, and, of course, it's just a copy, and to them... Hold it. No, that won't come out until they until you get into evidentiary hearing. Okay. The issue is is that they're going to circle yes. They, right. they admit, yes, we're in possession. Right. Well, hold it a second. I can sit there and draw upon the UCC that speaks specifically that we're not talking about copies, and you you entered into evidence to this court by an interrogatory claim that you signed under penalty of perjury that stated that you're in possession. Right. Now you're claiming well, you're not in possession? Well, they're, they are possessed, but that's another subject for another time. That's true. <laughs> they, they, it's just that, well, see, they're taught to be colorable in the expressions. Right. What doing? Well, we're being just equally as colorable. Yeah. And, and what I'm saying is that our color is black and white. Yeah, well, and it's pretty hard to get past that. And, and these talks are good because they serve the purpose of opening eyes about what they will and what they won't do, as opposed to being uh, how we expect them to be, right? Uh, well, if we have a general idea of what it is that they've been doing, which, well, that's all the case law that's out there currently. 
And we, wow. we're, we're understanding all more and more all the time the various tactics. Now, keep in mind that this is not a static environment. It's dynamic. So they keep upgrading their procedures, the way that they're approaching this, in order to offset the various claims and why more and more people are waking up. However, there are certain elements that they just can't get by. Nope, that's true. And when those things, and, and the thing is, is that um, I'm sure that you guys have heard this, the statement, leading testimony. Now, leading a witness is a no-no. However, right. you, can, you can ask questions in interrogatories and depositions whereby you get the person to make certain admissions. During the course of them making the admissions, and note, you got a court reporter there taking this stuff down in a deposition. You've got them signing off under the penalty of perjury in an interrogatory. You make a request for production of documents. And then when all of this stuff comes together and you point at it and go, black and white, what kind of color are you trying to play here, brother? You're showing me copies. You admitted right here that you're in possession, not only in an interrogatory, but you also stated so inside of a deposition. And then what are you submitting? A copy. Where do you qualify as being the duly qualified holder with a copy? Explain that to the court. And let them go ahead and start dancing around. The moment that they start dancing around, then you say, hold it a second. At this point in time, it does not appear as if you have acquired all of the rights within a transfer, which means that you're only in parcel possession, which now means that you're not a person that's entitled to enforce. Is there any objections? And that pretty well shuts them down right there. So if you haven't looked up under Article 3, um, rights acquired under transfer, do it. It's a, it's a powerful statement. I think one of the other tools that they used also was uh, a color capture to, uh, to forge uh, uh, to forge a document, to forge a deed. Well, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of that going on, you know, as far as forging instruments. The issue is, is that if the subject matter of forging comes into play, then there is certain um, certain procedures in which have to be moved forward. It's it's a lot easier to simply say, well, the document of which you offered. I don't know if you have had opportunity to read the white paper that had been produced by uh, Bob Jenis. We've got it right there on the front page of of this start meeting. If you go over there and click wall on your you know that dashboard that's in front of you. If you click uh, uh, View Wall, you'll see uh, uh, White Paper 1301. If you don't have it there, just go into your search engine, put FTFM Paper Number 1301, and put the last name Jane, J-A-N-E-S, Janice with Janes, and... um, it's free, and it's called resulting documents. There's a series of codes that are inside there, but the idea is is that that is the stuff in which these cats like to throw in front for evidence, but if they don't have the supporting documents, you can waste it away. 
you can have it all dismissed because it's not supported. So it's something to entertain. Understanding the nature of what resulting documents brings to the field of what is actually needed. And that's what a CODA does. A CODA not only looks at what is there, what has been filed with the ancillary documents and whatnot, all the, all the papers that have been brought together, but it's what is not there is where their Achilles heel is. And that's where we, that's where we catch them with their defective instruments is by the documents in which are not there. Because at that point, what do you think they do? Manufacture them. And then when they manufacture them, then they really got a problem. Why? Now, how are you going to begin backdating assignments and endorsements? So now, now it's like, okay, you did this right here. Now show us the supporting documents. Who is the party that signed this? Where's the signatory? Call them in as a witness. I want to depose them. You see what I'm saying? And then as far as the notary goes, now they're trying to use the e-notary system. Well, yeah, you can use the e-notary system, but uh, that's also registered under the Secretary of State. So you're going to have a pretty darn hard time backdating an e-notary stamp, you know, whether it's a few months ago or a few years ago or whatever, because it's already in the annuals. You can't go back in there and modify that. And even if you got in there and started screwing around with that, that would be called tampering with a public record, and that's a felony. The reason why you're saying that is because they don't perfect their claim by filing with the uh, county records. They that's only do so typically after they initiate some kind of proceeding. That's correct. They, mo they play most of the people because most of the people, most of the homeowners, just hate property. You know, they, they don't challenge it. Or if they do, they don't know what to, how to challenge it. But the yeah. issue is, is most of them just walk away. And so yeah. the, the persons who are litigating, the opponent that is litigating this, it's almost like a free claim for them. Because the, guys, the defendant never even shows up in court, so they just get a summary judgment. And then, of course, they're laid on top of it as a deficiency judgment, <laughs> um, which can carry over top of your, one's head, you know, like a, for uh, any number of years. Matter of fact, I think I just finished reading some here not long ago where Maryland has extended the uh, deficiency judgment claims for a total of 37 years, I think it was. Or something oh, jeez. Like yeah, it's absolutely bizarre, isn't it? That's now, cruel now, and unusual. It, well, that's statutory. You know, uh, you know. keep in mind uh, the subject matter of statutes of limitations and, you know, challengeable items and whatnot, but the idea is, is that they may go ahead and levy a deficiency judgment, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's uh, collectible, you know, and there's always a possibility of going back in there and, and having it overturned. However, the issue is we should not place ourselves in that position in the first place. And uh, what I mean is we should be addressing this head on and not having to worry about trying to get things turned over. It's not to say that we can't get things turned over. It's just that it's it's not an uphill grind um, to get things. Uh, if, if you're trying to get things turned over, it's an uphill grind. If you confront the stuff head on, 
it's either uh, uh, viewed as a level uh, playing field or it's a downhill roll for you. So it's a whole lot easier to confront it head on than to wait until the last minute and trying to do something about it. Do we have any other questions, comments, suggestions, ideas? Dave, Charles, you guys want to wrap this up? Yeah, we can wrap it up. So if we have no more questions tonight, um, like somebody famous we know, you be good to yourselves, right, Dave? And to each other. <laughs> okay, good night, everyone. Good night, folks. Thank you for your participation. There you go. There you go.
with Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.